welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And unfortunately, we don't have a Brenna, but thankfully we do have an Alex Heaney. <laughs> One of many. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is no comparison. You are a singular person, yes. <laughs> Not according to Google, but thank you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> So, folks, you may remember Alex from our first episode on The Hunger Games, so it seemed only appropriate to bring her back in Brenna's absence, because, of course, we are talking about the third film and part of the third book. So, yes, we're talking about Mockingjay Part 1 today. And uh, we'll just quickly do the acknowledgement that our show is created on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And Mockingjay is, of course, set in the fictional world of Pan Am. Which is the colonies, right? That's like the 13 colonies, I assume, is where it's technically set? Yes, and of course, I think... The real like counterpart would be like the Appalachians or something like that. Yeah. But um, for the purposes of our land acknowledgement, we'll say that the film was shot in Atlanta or partially in Atlanta. Okay. That's a smart way of solving this problem. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And Atlanta is the ancestral home of the Muskogee. And has a lot of tax credits for filmmaking. Well, there is that. Yes. <laughs> So, Alex, we are talking about Mockingjay Part 1, the film, uh, but we're going to start with Mockingjay, the book. And folks, we're going to acknowledge off the top, this is a very unique situation. <laughs> Typically, we would talk about the whole book, but for the purposes today, we're only going to be talking up to the end of Chapter 13. So it's about 183 or 4 pages, give or take. But Alex, I'm curious, do you want to refresh people's minds about how you feel about the Hunger Games and maybe more specifically this third entry? Yeah, well, it's it's actually been kind of a journey in the last week because I first read all three of these, but like I saw the Hunger Games movie first. Okay. I got pushed into it by friends and I was like, oh, I'm not going <laughs> to like this. And they were like, no, no, Alex, I know you, you'll like this. And then they were right. Mm -hmm. And then I like read all of them in one weekend to the point that like my Amazon order for the next hard copy book couldn't come fast enough. So I bought the Kindle book. Wow. So I kind of devoured them. And then I, I was really drawn to how they deal with trauma and the like public and private personas, hmm. which was a big thing back in the day when I was reading these, which was not that long after they came out. But this is like the time of Gossip Girl and The Good Wife and Mad Men. Mm -hmm. And I was devouring those shows too. And so it seemed to be like a big thing on the cultural mind, I guess. Um, and so I, I'd, I'd read them many, many times. And then I, I, I haven't actually engaged with them at all since I was on your Hunger, your episode on The Hunger Games itself as in book, book one, film one. Right. Uh, which was like, I don't know, five years ago? Yeah, three, <laughs> three and a half. Uh -huh. So I had to go back because I, it's before that I hadn't read them since, I don't know, eight eight years ago or something like that. And so I, I went back through and I reread all the books and I rewatched all the movies. And it's been a weird experience because there are things that I remember being there that I think I projected into it. Okay. And, but more so, I like, I think just the world has changed a lot. So it's interesting to like look back at it as a cultural mm. document of that time. Like, mm -hmm. I know something you guys talked about in your Catching Fire episode. I think we talked about when we talked about the Hunger Games was the love triangle yeah. and how annoying it is and how that's uh -huh. in, like every <laughs> YA book. And the thing is, when I read it back then, I, it didn't bug me mm -hmm. because that's how we told stories about women. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, like when I, when I compared to these other texts, like the good wife was like, is she going to leave her husband for her boss? Mm -hmm. And Gossip Girl was like, is Blair going to choose Chuck or Chuck upgrade or guy who gets her? Okay, I guess <laughs> that's more than like 
too. But <laughs> there's you know like what 10 I mean? like, on Gossip Girl. There's yeah. like 10 on Gossip Girl because that show moves. The- but that was kind of like how we told stories. Mm-hmm. And I know it gets frustrating from a YA perspective because that's in everything. But now even YA stories, like I've read YA books in the last few years where it's like, there's one guy and the thing is they're not going to be together forever. Mm-hmm. They just help each other through a certain stage of their lives. And now, especially in like more adult films, I, I don't mean porn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like there there have been movies like Worst Person in the World or um, Other People's Children or Spinster that are about – that maybe kind of seem to be about women choosing between a couple of men but then – choosing themselves or just Mm -hmm. about women choosing themselves and choosing not to have a relationship with men so it's it's like extra frustrating to go back to this i think now with that in mind because it's like we oh we don't have to tell stories like that anymore yeah yeah you're right it really does feel like it's a cultural moment right like this is how we talked about women and it seemed almost as though the only way we could envision an interesting woman is if she had to be making a romantic choice between two explicitly male partners right it's not even like we we could conflate the idea that a person might be queer or or even bisexual or something in panem don't think so (laughs) (laughs) no but then I don't know if you had this experience, but going back for the reread of Mockingjay, this was always my least favorite book. I felt like Suzanne Collins didn't do a great job of understanding why people liked the first two books. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and rereading it, I thought, oh, you know what? This is actually so much more mature yeah. than I remembered. And also the love triangle is not a factor. Like it, it's there, yeah. but it's really not being handled so heavily, at least in the first half of this book. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about the book Mockingjay is that I guess the way I've seen the series from the love triangle perspective is like book one is Katniss is like, I'm never going to get married. And then she gets forced into this fake romance with PETA. Mm -hmm. But it's all under surveillance. So even if it's starting to become true in her head, it isn't. And then in Catching Fire, she realizes that now she's under surveillance forever. Mm-hmm. And in the first half of that book, it's like she doesn't she actually doesn't get what she wants because she spends her time with Gail because she thinks that's what free will is. Right. And she doesn't get the things she needs, like help with her PTSD from PETA until they go on their victory tour and are once again under surveillance because under surveillance, they're supposed to be in love, mm-hmm. which means she doesn't have to think about if she is really in love. She can just act it and then that's convenient right and then in Mockingjay like in the first in the first half anyway it's the first time she and Peter are actually divided mm-hmm. and what the book does is first with the division is it makes it so that she's in this weird place of like, maybe I'm never going to get Peter back right. and so then Gail is kind of like a non he's a bit more of a character in the books but he's like kind of a non-character he's just a projection for her he represents mm-hmm. The home that she's lost, the life that she's lost because she's been through the Hunger Games. He represents like the kind of survival that she needed when she was like pre-Hunger Games, which was, you know, feed my family, mm-hmm. basic kind of physical survi- survival. And then it became with the Hunger Games, it became more about psychological survival. And yeah. so then mostly what Gail does in the book, I think, is. He doesn't really do much aside from she realizes he's kind of calculating, but whatever they all are, so that's <laughs> fine. Well, I think it's that and also he represents what she – not even just what she has lost, but yeah. how far away from her origin she has moved, right? Yeah. Like, he's yeah. so – angry and really upset about things and it's a very district 12 point of view and katniss has grown beyond that because she's seen what life is like in these other areas like i think for gail things are still very black and white whereas for katniss she's increasingly learned that the world isn't as simplistic and that's one of the strengths i think of mockingjay the book is that it does acknowledge that as you become older you have to recognize that it's not as simple as what you maybe thought as a child. Yeah, and where I will give the book credit is I actually don't think it's that interested in the love triangle. Mm -mm. (laughs) Like, 
you know, in the years since I, there have been film adaptations of Maria Chapdelaine and Far From the Madden Crowd, which are kind of like, I don't know if they're YA exactly, but they're about young women. Right. And those stories, which are from the 1800s, one from Quebec, that's Maria Chapdelaine and Far From the Madden Crowd is British. Those are about like the time when the only choice a woman got to make was who she married. Mm. And the books are more interested in what each of those men represents than like as a society, as a country, than they are in her. And where I do feel like maybe in hindsight, we don't give enough credit to the Hunger Games series is that the boys are more about her than they are about them. And Mm. I think that a lot of the Hunger Games pretender series that came later, copycat series, I guess. Yeah. They kind of missed that beat. And I do like the idea that, I mean, this is later in the book, but you kind of know it's coming if you're an adult reader. Um, The, like, Katniss has to figure out what she needs now in this new world because, as you said, she's come so far from the Mm pre-games. And so then the boys kind of end up representing what she needs as opposed to representing the nation or masculinity and... I do admire that about how it deals with them in the book. Yeah. It's also always felt intrinsically like Katniss's story, right? Like she's she's never been defined by her will she won't they with the boys. Like I think No, except in the way that other people try to define her that way. Yes, yes. Because of course, I mean, it's a lot of older white gentlemen who want to tell her, you know, oh, well, for the the purposes of your narrative, Plutarch says, you know, we need to present this united front. Like, it's interesting how the fake pregnancy, which is an issue in the books and not at all in the movies, like, in this third book, we just say, oh, Katniss lost the baby. We don't want to address it because we need to send her out into war. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sure. Let's go with that. Yeah, But um, I'm recognizing we also just jumped right into this and folks who may not have read Mockingjay in quite some time. So in case you don't remember, Catching Fire ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. So we've done another round of Hunger Games and it's all the victors in the 75th quarter quell. And it turns out that Katniss has unwittingly been moved into the position of a rebel leader without her consent or knowledge so everyone else has been actually supporting her to make sure that they can get out of this alive and it ends this big cliffhanger when she gets rescued by a hovercraft but Peta does not and she's very distraught so the third book we we pick up shortly thereafter she's heavily traumatized mm-hmm. she's very worried about Peta. But also we're now living in District 13 underground because District 12 was bombed into oblivion. And somehow Gale saved the day. Yes, because... of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what 17-year-old boys do. That's that's who Gale is. He's a hero <laughs> without a personality. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind Gale, but I 100% no. agree with you. He's just not very interesting particularly in this book like yeah we're really setting things up for the back half which we're not going to talk about a lot he's more interesting in catching fire to be fair yeah yeah i that's why i always thought the love triangle part was funny because gail never seemed like a viable candidate for me no like especially in mockingjay he's like mm -hmm. done he's just a whiny teenage boy who can't get the girl that he likes that and also a teenage boy who thinks that he... he's entitled to her. Well, entitled to her, but also entitled to be an important part of this rebellion, even yeah. though his skills are tantamount to yes, he <laughs> rescued a bunch of people, which is great. You know, he he definitely saved Katniss's family, so her mom and Prim, and even the cat, uh, have yeah. survived <laughs> to make it into District Thirteen. But apart from that, his qualifications are just that he knows how to hunt. Like yeah. We have the introduction of a new president, President Coyne, and Plutarch, who is the head game master, are still actively in play. They have been planning things for a very long time. And then we've got Gale, thinking that yeah. he needs and deserves to be in the room. Yeah. <laughs> like, sorry, no. <laughs> and I mean, I think it, it sort of has the same problem with the victors. Like, they're all traumatized people, but are somehow mm-hmm. really important to the rebellion, which 
we'll just kind of ignore because they're the interesting characters. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a little disappointing because they do become figureheads of a kind. Yeah. But what I like about the book is how it is trying to negotiate the idea that there's still power to be found in yes. these individuals, even yeah, though they absolutely. are horribly broken. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, I know something we both really wanted to talk about was how the books deal with PTSD and mm-hmm. with the with the victors. I think what I really like about it, and this has been true like all through the series, is that first you get, especially in Catching Fire, you get to see not just how broken Katniss and Peta are, yes. but you suddenly discover they're part of this community of broken people. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Katniss is, has got blinders on so she doesn't really it takes her forever to figure this out yeah (laughs) (laughs) we like katniss but also she is i don't want to say narcissistic but she's often very focused on herself yeah and she's also traumatized so she can't Mm -hmm. think beyond her immediate circumstances yes but i'm curious what you because i mean i have stuff to say about how the book deals with with the trauma and the victors, but I know that was something you're interested in, so. Yeah, I think one of the things that I really wound up enjoying on this reread of Mockingjay was Katniss's difficulty with sleeping and just allowing herself to be at rest because that's when all of the negative thoughts, all of the repercussions, Mm. all of the obsessions about decisions that she's made that are going to hurt other people come to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And so I think, as a novice reader, like when I read this like eight years ago, 10 years ago yeah, now, yeah. I was bored by a lot of this. <laughs> like, oh God, she just keeps talking about how she can't sleep or how she's hiding out behind the pipes and crying for like a day. You know, like, where's the Katniss I know and love who's shooting the arrows and stuff? And yeah. you realize as an adult, oh, wow. Like, they don't talk about trauma or PTSD because they don't have that kind of language in Pan yeah. And yet you can so clearly see, wow, is no one giving this 17 slash 18 year old girl therapy? Like they sometimes talk about some pills, but it's unnamed. And there is some therapy in it. She's going to see somebody because she has this like, I don't know that mantra is quite the right word, but she's supposed to like repeat all the things that she knows are true. Mm-hmm. Which is how the book begins. Yes. Yeah. She is Katniss Everdeen. She is from District 12. She is alive. <laughs> and later in in the second half of the book, you see Peta doing the same thing and Joanna doing the same thing. Right. But, but I mean, obviously, like, one session a week of Mm-mm. what is true is not going to solve your PTSD. Well, meanwhile, she's also being asked to film propaganda points and suit up in warrior gear and that kind of stuff. And while she's being constantly manipulated. So like the she's not even outside of the PTSD environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not immediately trying to kill her, but she also doesn't know who is trying to kill her. Yeah, that's actually one of the other really fascinating pieces, like having to only read heard of this book i know you read the full book yeah i i elected to stop where we're going to stop the conversation today just to see how colin sort of structures this and where they decided to artificially break the film and it's interesting because early on you can tell that katniss doesn't entirely trust these adults right like she trusts prim yeah and she trusts her mother and that is about it so coin coin is like she maybe has some ideas about her but also she's like okay well this woman's getting it done so i guess i'll go along with things i think she trusts finnick i do think she trusts finnick but finnick is worse than she is yeah but it's funny because there are these small moments in the book that i have an outsized memory of you know like it's two pages but that's what stuck with me for 10 years Hmm. and one of those things is the fact that he helps her and gives her the rope mm-hmm. and i'm kind of spoiling here because but the echoing that that rope as sort of like the how you keep yourself together this is how we deal with it yes kind of echoes through later on in the in the books when you see Peta with the rope and i think mm-hmm. joanna maybe even i can't remember and there's a scene there there are these like tiny little moments where finnick shows up like he wheels Beatty into the control room Mm-hmm. Which tells you something about 
Finnick and Beatty and how they're closely tied, even if we don't know what's going on because Katniss doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. And there's a really important moment because because when PETA calls for a ceasefire in the book, Katniss watches that with Finnick in private. Mm-hmm. And Finnick tells her to lie about having seen it. Yes. And you get this sense that Finnick gets, because I think Katniss kind of understood in book two that now the Hunger Games are always-ish. Mm-hmm. She's like, she eventually got there by maybe like a third of the way in. Right. But now we're in a completely new environment, and I don't know how much Katniss really understands that the Hunger Games are still on. Yeah, I think she thinks that she's free of it because yeah. she's out of the eye of President Snow and the Capitol. But of course, the reality is, is that we're going to find out the coin isn't any better. Yeah. But also, this is just a different type of surveillance. And exactly. also, you can never escape that. Like, I think some of the most impactful moments of Mockingjay in this first part of the book mm. is when we learn from both Hamish and Finnick what it meant to win and then have yeah. to live the rest of your life Absolutely. performing for the delight of the public eye, but also even the private eye. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact that there's all these different levels of performance Mm-hmm. because in a way she, she doesn't she doesn't know whether to trust Hamish or not right because she trusts him more than she trusts other people but she's been manipulated by him in the past yeah she's very she's very mad at him not just for leaving Peter behind but even like the the way that she is mean about his sobriety and his yeah. addiction problems I'm like oh okay Katniss like maybe take it down a notch yeah I know something that you guys talked about on the Catching Fire episode is like, why do we have to go back into the games again? Mm-hmm. And I have my own mixed feelings about that. But I think one of the big payoffs for it, because that's that's the text we're stuck with. Yeah. Um, in Mockingjay 1 is when Hamish finally returns, dried out, and now yep. he's suddenly going to have power over Katniss again. And he says to her, just say it. And she tells him, why didn't you save Peta? You should have saved Peta instead of me. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of, in her internal narr- narration, she's like, but it doesn't feel finished. Yeah. She tells him, you say it. And he says, well, why did you let Peta out of your sight? And <laughs> this little exchange is where they kind of explain to each other that you can't win in the games. Mm-hmm. That you, in a way, you're not even, res- not that you're not responsible for your own actions, but you you're going to make the choices and then you have to live with them, but you didn't have any other choices. Like they basically conclude that they couldn't have saved PETA and that she couldn't have stayed with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess they could have saved PETA, not her, but they definitely could have saved them both and they couldn't have separated. And I think that's kind of like such a key part of what this series is about and where you understand I don't know, like the way that they understand how each other thinks. Yeah, it's a really great way of showing the evolution of this relationship from like mentor and mentee. I think for me, it also helps to clarify a lot of what Mockingjay is about, which is private citizens versus sort of public responsibility. So so much of it is Katniss trying to pretend like she's still an individual and she has decision like she has the power of decision making for herself and the people she loves, as opposed to finding yourself a cog in a larger machine. Yeah. And the machine in this case has switched from the Hunger Games, which we've seen for two previous books, to now this rebellion slash war. And like Katniss is just so eager to blame people for personal things. And this is, I think, part of her realizing that, you know what, we're actually all messed up in something quite a bit larger it's not about mm-hmm. me and Peta versus president snow and hamish disappointed yeah. us it's like <laughs> oh my gosh we're actually fighting for everybody and i need to stop trying to make individuals feel bad or blaming them because yeah. the problem is much much bigger like it's institutional yeah well i think that the series progresses that way too through oh, yeah. like the plot helps with that i mean obviously the plot helps with the themes but that seems <laughs> oh my like god shocking thing to say. <laughs> but like katniss's survival at the beginning is literally i have to feed my family mm-hmm. so she's used to thinking about 
right now and tomorrow and can't think big picture. Yes. And then even in her first games, she still thinks it's all about her winning and it takes her a long time to figure out that there are more things going on and that she needs other people's help. And I think that's why Rue is such an important character in that first book, right? Because it's like, oh, I can care about somebody else who isn't from my district, who has a completely different upbringing and family and all this kind of stuff but also we're all kind of in this together yeah and then in and then in book two it opens up even more and now she has to have more allies Mm -hmm. and she understands there are more people like her and that there she still doesn't totally understand what's going on but she knows that there's more going on yes and then of course Mockingjay is suddenly she's dropped into this whole new world but also is she is this a whole Mm -hmm. new world and I don't know, maybe that's a good transition to the film because I feel like a lot of the other stuff, a lot of the other stuff that's related to these things is like the book gets it and the film doesn't or the film does this better or the film can't do these things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's transition then over to The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, part one. I never wanted any of this. I never wanted to be in the games. I just wanted to save my sister and keep Peter alive. Miss Everdeen, it's the things we love most that destroy us. to lay down their weapons now. You're alive. PETA is the capital's weapon. The same way you're ours. You will rescue PETA at the earliest opportunity, or you will find another Mockingjay. Okay, so Mockingjay Part 1 comes out in November of 2014. It's part of the reason why we're covering it this week. It's the 8th anniversary. But also, guess what, Alex? We're one year away from the adaptation of the Ballad of Songbird and Serpents or whatever that prequel movie is going to be. So, Oh, seriously? I didn't realize they were adapting it. Why? Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gotta get that money. Oh, for sure. This is valuable IP just sitting on the shelf. So the film is once again directed by Francis Lawrence. He did Catching Fire. We've got the entire cast returning. I guess a couple of immediate distinctions off the top is that we have Elizabeth Banks as Effie in the film, whereas in the book, she does not show up in this first part. We get little glimpses of Stanley Tucci as Caesar Flickerman. Uh, Donald Sutherland also gets a slightly larger role as President Snow, because if you've got donald sutherland why wouldn't you use him he's really good too in this oh honestly perfect casting i always loved him as president snow and i'm fascinated to see how they're gonna try to or if they're gonna try to get this new kid to do a donald sutherland-esque performance good luck good luck he's a canadian legend for a reason Uh, obviously, a big new addition to the cast is Julianne Moore as President Coyne, and I really love her, but I hate those contacts that make yeah. it look like her eyes are just <laughs> constantly reflecting all the light in the room. Well, also Mahershala Ali before yes. Moonlight. I didn't even realize, Alex. <laughs> I kept being like, because I've also been watching The Good Wife, which is like about how white people can't. There's episodes about how white people can't tell the difference between different black faces. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I kept going crazy where I was like, that's Mahershala Ali, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm like, he's really good. That's got to be Mahershala Ali. And then I was like, no, you're wrong. Because mm-hmm. my brain hadn't realized this was before Moonlight. Because I was like, no, I, no way he would have done this after Moonlight. I don't know. Yeah, maybe he would have. I don't know. His career has been interesting since then, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things that Brenna and I love to talk about is the idea of stunt casting yeah. in a YA film, right? And for me, the most obvious 
example of that here is Julianne Moore. But, yeah. you know, you look at the adult cast of this, obviously, at this point, Jennifer Lawrence, Josh Hutcherson, and Liam Hemsworth are pretty well established. Like, these movies are making bank. But I think the addition yeah. of people like Julianne Moore and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Jeffrey Wright and oh, Stanley yeah, Tucci, so like, all of these people are giving that extra oomph of yeah. credibility. Like, these are serious YA films. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about, like, why I have problems with the movies. Okay. Especially Catching Fire and Mockingjay. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is the writing. Right. Like, how do you adapt the fact that, like, there's just 10 scenes of Finnick crying? Like, that, mm-hmm. you can't, how do you put that on film? Yeah, it would be the most boring thing. Yeah, and you need some other way of showing his PTSD that they don't figure out. But I think something I really felt in Mockingjay, because there's just, like, so much stunt casting, yeah, is, like, for example, the character Boggs, who, when I every time I read the book, I forget who he is. Mm-hmm. But then you have Mahershala Ali playing him, and you're like, suddenly he's a real person. Yes. And... They get that with all of this, all of the adults who are really great actors end up bringing a lot of depth to the characters. Even though the characters themselves are still a little shallow in the films. Yeah, even though the characters are a little shallow. But I think where they really struggle, and I think it's this is what happened with catching. Basically, I think the original Hunger Games movie by Gary, that was directed by Gary Ross, was intended as a character study. Right. And then... But that's also why he got fired and they brought in Francis Lawrence. Exactly. Because they said they wanted action. And Francis Lawrence is an action movie maker and a world builder. And I think his world building is really good, but he does not know how to deal with actors. Mm. And the challenge with both Catching Fire and especially Mockingjay is those kid characters become more complex. Right. And you need actors who can do it, especially if you're not going to deliver it on the page. And, you know, they're lucky that Jennifer Lawrence is right. Jennifer Lawrence because <laughs> She's <really good. laughs> these films would have fallen apart without her. Yeah. But I didn't think Josh Hutcherson was good enough in the first film. And by this film, he just can't handle it. And like Liam Hemsworth, can he even act or is he just pretty? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're each going to have their defenders. I'm a big fan of Josh Hutcherson, but yeah. Yeah, he's he's been good in other things, but I don't know that he's well cast here. I, I'm inclined to agree. I like him as an actor, but in terms of this role, I'm not sure that he's what they truly needed. Because neither of these boys feel like they are good enough for Jennifer Lawrence's Katniss. Yeah, well, that's part of it. I also don't know that Josh Hutcherson has the charisma that PETA needs. Right. But maybe even more importantly, I think, is that... By the time we get to Catching Fire, they've given up on this as a character study. So they don't have a director who can work with actors. Mm -hmm. So the only characters that come out as real people are like actors who don't need a director. And the challenge here is you've got the youngest, least experienced actors who need the most directing and a hollowed out script where they don't have a lot to work with. And they're the ones who have the most stuff that's supposed to be going on in the in the books. Mm-hmm. Even in the book, some of it is kind of weak as far as like how you would translate that into a 3D thing on screen. And mm. then like, you know, even Ray Fiennes didn't really become wasn't Ray Fiennes at 20. You know, like he was a great actor, but he couldn't do at 20 what he can do now. Right. You know, Jennifer Lawrence, a bit of a protege. I mean, so was Ray Fiennes. But like even still... <laughs> As good as Josh Hutcherson is, you know, you think about when he's been good in other films, he had real directors. It's interesting that you're saying this because I I totally agree with you, but I feel like for Mockingjay Part 1, it's not as much of an issue because Gail and Peta are not... Yeah, They're not no, as no, present, right. but they're also not as important. So yeah. in some ways, I think it's a huge issue when we get to Mockingjay Part 2 yeah, and all of yeah. a sudden Gail and Peta are required to make huge moves. But here, I'm like, oh, the main people I'm supposed to be paying attention to are how Plutarch and mm-hmm. Hamish to a lesser degree, but especially President Coin are kind of trying to control this new narrative. Yeah. And their acting is so good. I ended up really reappreciating Mockingjay Part 1. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I actually liked it a lot more now than I yeah. did when I first saw it. When I saw it in theaters, I remember going in 
with a certain level of apprehension. Because folks, in case you haven't gathered, this is a two-part finale, because this is what (laughs) we were doing with YA at the time. Milking it for all that you could. Although, I don't know how you would have done a good adaptation in two hours for this book, because there's so much going on. I think you would have just had to streamline everything. Like, you would have had to get rid of the Avoxes. You would have had to get rid of Cressida. You would probably get rid of even Effie and Hamish, if you're being honest, right? It's like, you would just have Katniss go into the propos, and then we would storm the Capitol. And it would be one movie, and it would be garbage. This one could have stood to use some action sequences, because it's like 2.5 hours long. And yet they still got rid of half the interesting stuff in the book. It is kind of shocking how trusting this film is, like particularly how we've talked about Francis Lawrence as an action director and a bit of a world builder. We're spending a lot of time underground. It's very gray, like very sad, muted colors. And everybody's really disappointed and sad in this movie. So it's (laughs) shocking to me that they didn't keep as much action like i know we we build to the climax of the rescue in the capital and we actually get to see it compared to the book where we didn't it was very Mm -hmm. much like kind of hearsay Ooh, what's happening we'll find out when they're back yeah and that makes sense but you're right this is two and a half hours of a lot of just sad people and i'm surprised it did as well as it did like we're talking 755 million on a budget of anywhere between 125 to 140. So I resented them breaking this into two films at the time because I had seen them do it for Twilight and Harry Potter and it feels like a cash grab, but it totally worked. And I do think you're right. We needed two movies to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) So you mentioned that you think the film does some things a little bit better than the book. And I'm curious, I feel like even though you and I have come around on this movie, I think a lot of people still look at it kind of resentfully. So what's something that you think the film is actually doing better? I think the world building is better in the film, which is a weird thing because I think that the book kind of has deliberately bad That's an exaggeration in world building. I remember when I first read The Hunger Games, I was so excited about it. Mm -hmm. And I gave gave it to a friend of mine who's really into science fiction and stuff to read. Ooh, okay. I was like, this book is so great. And she came out of it and she was like, the world building sucked. I hated it. And I was like... (laughs) You're like, oh, I kind of can't can't disagree with that. The world building isn't great. It isn't great. And... It didn't bother me because I had seen the Hunger, the first Hunger Games movie before I read the book. Uh, so I right. had stuff to picture in my head. Mm-hmm. But the world building is kind of deliberately bad in the book because it's Katniss's point of view. Yes. And Katniss doesn't understand the world she's living in. Mm-mm. So it's good in, in the sense that it gives you enough that you know that Katniss doesn't get it. But the book Mockingjay is kind of a huge payoff in a way that maybe the Mockingjay the film isn't because suddenly all the threads come together Hmm. whereas in the films we've already seen like the uprising in district 11 well well, there's like the the thing that happens when rue dies and people get mad right um and then we we don't hear about district 13 in in the second film but we do see like all the unrest in the districts and we get access to to like scenes with Plutarch and Snow and people that Katniss doesn't have access to. Mm-hmm. So we understand things that Katniss doesn't. And so by the time we get here, like District 13 is novel to us, but the fact that there are more machinations going on than Katniss is aware of and the degree of them is not as much news mm-hmm. as it is in the book. And I think the film then works really well to. I think this is something you were saying when we were kind of chatting about this as you had just rewatched it, is that it does a really good job of showing the contrasts or rather the similarities between Snow and Coin. And there are things that it gets to do visually that you can't do in the book, like putting Julianne Moore on a dais inside, (laughs) you know, all these people are lower down while she gives a speech. And that's cut next to Snow giving a mandatory speech in a very similar set. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of does work for us more concisely, whereas for Katniss, you need like 10 scenes of this stuff before Katniss figures it out. Yeah. 
I think one of the other reasons that the film works a little bit better in terms of world building is, as as you've hinted, we're stuck with Katniss because it's her first person perspective, right? So like whatever she doesn't know or whatever she can't handle because she's concussed, she's Mm -hmm. traumatized and so on. There's just a lot of kind of blanks in the book. Whereas in the film, they understand, well, we're not going to do voiceover narration. We haven't done it for the past two films. So we're free to leave Katniss behind at key points. So we actually get scenes between Plutarch and Coin. We get to see what's happening in the districts. Like, you know, we talked, there's not a ton of action in this movie, but there is that moment when the crowd sort of is galvanized by the hanging tree song and we get to see them chanting it as they march on a dam. I think it's in district two or maybe three Mm -hmm. and they like blow it up and it's, it's not, the most amazing action sequence but like we don't get that in the book we just hear oh there's been a damn explosion in this one and blah 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 and Peter says you know you need to stop this people are dying yeah I think also that we get a bit more depth than the other characters like I know you and Brenna complained about this in the Catching Fire episode that everybody else feels a little bit blank because we're only getting them through Katniss's perspective yeah I mean I think there's a little the the context gives us a bit more than you were giving them credit for, but I I okay. don't disagree with you mm-hmm. on on a broader scale, and I think that that's true of pretty much everyone except we actually lose a lot of Katniss in this book because mm-hmm. a lot of what happens in this book to screen adaptation because a lot of this book is all inside Katniss's head, whereas these things are more externalized in the mm-hmm. first two books, and. I also think we lose a lot with Finnick and yeah, it's like partly because in the book, he doesn't actually have that many scenes, but he shows up like 20 times for two minutes. <laughs> and I don't know how you adapt that into a film. And also like half of those times are just him weeping. So I get why they cut it, but then you really lose it. And Sam Claflin is one of these in between actors, I think, because I was complaining about how some of these young actors don't have the chops to, like, mm-hmm. you know, just do a Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, who does? But, right. <laughs> but, you know, like, Sam Claflin is someone who can be really excellent when he's well directed, yes. right? Like, you came on my podcast, the Seventh Row podcast, to talk about The Nightingale mm-hmm. way back when in the Can We Remember These Times. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, and he's terrific in that. So good. And complex. But he obviously has been directed. And I don't mean that in a bad way. (laughs) Like, I don't think it's a problem that actors need to be directed. Mm -hmm. But I think he's an actor who can be fantastic when he's well-directed and who can kind of not shine when he isn't well-directed. And I don't think there's any proof that Francis Lawrence is an actor's director in this film. Like, they would have needed new structural ideas for how to deal with Finnick. And I guess... Part of it was they, they like, wanted to hew close to the books for the fans, Mm -hmm. but then the books don't necessarily adapt well. Right. But then they didn't find new solutions for characters and and important threads, like the the trauma, in how they did it in the film. Yeah, it's interesting. So we haven't talked about this, but the screenplay is from a writing pair of... Danny Strong. Jonathan from Buffy. Jonathan from Buffy, (laughs) Danny Strong, and Peter Craig. And people probably know them because they they got their start doing like recount the HBO adaptation of Game Change. They did Lee Daniels the Butler. So I think a lot of people thought that these were They did that Lear TV show. I mean it wasn't called Lear, but Uh, that's where they became famous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember at the time they were very hot commodities, so this was a good get for them. But I think a lot of people thought, oh, they're going to have their finger on the pulse for this, especially Mm -hmm. when you look at something like Recount, which has that political flavor to it. Yeah. And of course, Empire is all about the political infighting that goes on within Mm -hmm. a dynasty. So I think it naturally makes sense. But yeah, but that's why the the film is good at the political stuff, but bad at the trauma and the surveillance state yeah like we understand implicitly that katniss is traumatized 
we see Finnick is a little bit the same, but he just doesn't have the screen time. They don't share enough of those scenes together. So mm. it just kind of seems like when Katniss can't perform, we bring in Finnick. Like that's his yeah. role in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And that is really disappointing, especially when you reread the book and you realize their relationship is integral to this because absolutely, it, it's almost like when she doesn't have Peta, she has to lean on Finnick. But there's no fears of romance or yeah. sexuality here because he's obsessed with Annie, who is still being held in the in the capital with Peter. Well, and that's one of the key problems, I think, in the adaptation to the film is that Annie doesn't end up being held in the capital. She's in District 13 the whole time because in the books, Finnick and Katniss end up being foils in a way because Katniss realizes the capital has done to Finnick what they've done to her. Mm-hmm. Like, they end up rescuing Peta because she figures out that Peta is the weapon they're using against her. Yeah. And that he's been weaponized the same way Annie has. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to tell her that because they know that it will stop her. <laughs> <laughs> and Hamish is like, shit, you figured it out. But Finnick kind of keeps hinting at it without saying it. Mm-hmm. And eventually she figures it out. I love that Finnick doesn't want to tell her outright because he understands it's important that she come to the realization herself like Mm. there is something frustrating about how people don't ever tell Katniss like what's happening you know it was really frustrating when we talked about catching fire I was just like why doesn't somebody say something to her about this (laughs) but then you realize I mean a it's a YA trope but B, it works better here because it's emotional. It's not about yeah. the radical uprising and so on. Actually, that's a really good point because all the people she ends up being able to trust are people who want her to make her own decisions. Yes. Like the fact that Cinna doesn't want her to see the designs before mm-hmm. she agrees to make become the <sighs> Mockingjay. I love that which moment. Which is a huge thing in the book. It's like vaguely in the film, but the film doesn't like everything in the film is condensed. And Mm -hmm. and I mean, you know, there are things in the book that it probably could have used an editor and maybe it could have found some other things to happen instead of two visits to 12. (laughs) Um, in order to say the same things like oh suzanne collins (laughs) like i think it achieves things but could have achieved them in a more interesting way so i get why they condensed it Mm -hmm. but the book gets a lot of mileage out of just like how many times things happen Mm -hmm. and there's a challenge with that on film because we can see it and we'll figure it out after time one and katniss won't but on the other hand we don't get the like the the slog well, we don't get to sit in it. it right yeah exactly you know what slog is absolutely the right word because as much as sometimes the book feels like it's almost dragging its feet or repeating instances you recognize that a that's part of katniss's like trauma and recovery where like she needs multiple instances to understand the importance of things because her brain is foggy mm-hmm But the film, obviously, you don't want to do that because it's not interesting to watch. And we're trying to cater to basically young men. Like, that's who these movies (laughs) are made for, ironically enough. Yeah. And I get it. But I always, I think, feel it more in these, like in this series compared to nearly every other dystopian YA adaptation that we've talked about. Because the other ones were aping this to a certain degree and not as well so i was okay when we were taking shortcuts whereas here i'm like the source material is really good like you should be doing more with this in a film Mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent. it's funny this would be a very different conversation if brenda was here because she'd just be like dystopias i hate them (laughs) (laughs) i mean honestly i'm kind of with her generally which is why i think hunger games is really interesting Mm -hmm. because i think the books are more interested in the characters than the dystopia, which is why I like them. Well, I think they they use the dystopia to explore the characters. That's a good way of putting it. Because yeah. I, I, I still 100% agree with what you're saying. It's just in the other versions, it feels like, well, we're using a dystopia to tell no. a story because yeah. that's our impetus. Whereas here, it's like, we want to explore who these characters are as a result of their surroundings. But yeah. it's not just a crutch or the starting point. And I think what happened with the movies once they hired Francis Lawrence is they went full in on the dystopia and the politics, mm-hmm. which I which they do well, but sure. at the expense of the character and the character yeah. stuff is what distinguished these books from 
other YA books even that came before it and certainly mm-hmm. the copycats afterward. Yeah, it's hard not to feel a little disappointed, even though, as I said, you know, rewatching this at times it moves a little bit slowly, but I was surprised at how easy this yeah. two and a half hour movie went down. And I, I have to admit, I really had to resist just hitting play on part two. Oh, like, yeah. I really wanted to just go right into it. I failed to resist. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was virtually, I was like, oh, right, I, I want to see Joanna because I miss Joanna. Yeah, and I hate to say that they don't give her enough screen time. No, it's, it's going to be the same situation as Finnick, right? Where yeah. in the book, very important, and in the film, minor character. Well, and I think that is because, you know, sometimes you watch movies and you come out of them convinced that somebody starred in it and it turns out they had two scenes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's called uh, like a dynamic performer who makes you believe (laughs) that they're there more than they actually are. Yeah. I don't know. Like, for example, I always thought that The Nick was actually Andre Holland's show. Oh, which okay. it basically became because obviously he and Soderbergh became pals and Soderbergh mm-hmm. was more interested in his character. But ultimately, he didn't get the screen time that Clive Owen did. Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter. I thought Andre Holland had the was the show. That's too funny. And, there, and there's like been a bunch of performances where I have to go back and rewatch the movie and realize they were there for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. But I thought they co-starred in the film. Right. And... These films kind of needed that with the supporting characters because they kind of felt like that in the book and they and you lose that in the film. Interesting. Which I guess goes to the point about like, I know something you guys talk about before was the chosen one narrative. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about that while I was rereading these books. And I think the books... Like, on the one hand, they are a chosen one narrative. On the other hand, they work really hard to work against it. And I think the films do the complete opposite, starting with the second film. Yeah. Yeah. Like, at this point, Katniss is truly the only person who can save the Empire. And the book does that, but it immediately positions it as a falsity, right? Like, this is a political campaign. That's why I love all of the ridiculously named propos in this Mm -hmm. book. Like, I love the idea of Katniss being made up and then put on a soundstage as though that's <laughs> going to be effective. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence does really good work as a bad actor. Right? It takes a certain level of skill. It really does. She's, she's so good at being so bad at acting. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. But I think, like, in The Hunger Games, the first book, it's like Katniss thinks she's going to win this on her own. And it turns out she can't win it without Peta's help, without Hamish's help, without Rue's help. Right. Without playing the system. Mm-hmm. And then she goes into the arena in book two. And again, she seems to think that she's going to pull this off on her own. Yeah, which with is the help very of frustrating. <laughs> and she has to learn that actually she needs the help of all the victors. Mm-hmm. And she becomes increasingly aware as the books go on that she needs... PETA to put things into perspective to, for her. She needs PETA to be the mouthpiece for her. Mm-hmm. And that becomes even more so in the book, Mocking Jay. But in the film, it's like you can shoot an arrow, and Gail can shoot an arrow too, and a gun. And yeah. so suddenly, you really are the chosen one because I guess that's the thing you want to market. I remember when I saw Catching Fire, there were all these kids in the audience with like a Katniss braid. Oh, yeah. And like a bow and arrow because I saw it on opening night. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously who they're playing to because they want to make a story to like inspire young girls while targeting 13 year old boys. Yep. Um, so then you have to make Katniss a chosen one. But like the great thing about the books is that she is, but she also very much isn't. And she can't be the thing they need without a whole group of support people. And yeah. at the same time, she is manipulated. In so many ways, she's being manipulated by absolutely everyone. Mm-hmm. Whereas chosen ones are usually like, I am here to save the day. And it is because of me, not because of like my 50 handlers. And yeah. I have to figure out who to listen to. Yeah, to me, that's where the intersection between the political elements of the dystopia and the focus on characters in the book works the best because it is undermining that chosen one narrative, mm-hmm. particularly in Mockingjay, where Katniss mm-hmm. realizes, oh, 
it's not just the surveillance state that's pervasive. It's this idea that no one is free, even in the so-called free district of District 13, right? Yeah. But uh, I'm thinking about your example of going to see this and how... Yeah, it's made to empower young girls while also catering to as wide a mass audience as possible so we can make these ridiculous box office grosses. <laughs> I can't help but wonder, do you think that this is just the difference in mediums? Like a book is for individuals and it's a solitary thing. It's about you and your imagination, whereas a film is so expensive that it can't possibly be that sort of insulated and narrow it has to be four quadrant it has to be marketable to ancillaries so that we can sell toys and Katniss hair braids Ooh, that's a tough one because right? I think from a money perspective that's probably true from a medium perspective I don't think that's true because okay. I think there are a lot of great filmmakers who tell subjective stories mm-hmm. but are they debuting to like 125 no, million at the no office. right they're they're indie <laughs> filmmakers right like yeah. terrence davies making the deep blue sea from inside hester's perspective which the play isn't mm-hmm. or andrew haig's films are always about like a perspective one character's perspective and the whole world is filtered through them i mean you can argue about whether the north water is that and looking kind of moves away from that a bit in his tv but mm. But that takes a certain kind of filmmaker who's not an action filmmaker, right? That's a character filmmaker. And like you said, I don't think those films have... Well, maybe they would have mass appeal. I think, but yeah, you would have to have a studio who would know what to do with it and how to sell it properly. I mean, yeah. the reality is, is no, you would never get it to these heights. And really, that's that's what the studio wanted, right? It's why we had two films, because they yeah. wanted those... They wanted that dollar. They wanted the dollar dollar bills. But what makes me sad is that I think even Suzanne Collins has fallen into this trap where reading the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, like it was a really frustrating read. I don't know if you've read it, but Brenna and I aggressively hated that book. That's what everyone's told me, so I haven't read it. (laughs) It falls into all of the traps of the things that we've been talking about where we don't like it. It's not really about characters. It's about setting up the plot and the dystopia, but it doesn't inform things in an interesting way. It's more like, hey, did you ever wonder how this thing from the Hunger Games came about? This is how it gets set in motion. It feels like we're just setting up dominoes backwards. Well, I think this is also a product of the time and where movies were going and how we would adapt this today versus how it was adapted mm-hmm. in like, like they started in what, 2011? I think so. Yeah. Because 2011 is around the time when all the actors started selling out to Marvel. Right. You know, like Marvel was a thing, but it wasn't the dominant cultural. This is the reason I go to the movies. Mm-hmm. yet it was getting there and every time somebody got big they sold they either did one movie with marvel or one of the other comic books yeah because this would have been the hunger games would have come out right around the time as the avengers which is really yeah. when everything gets solidified and right kind of takes over well and look at those people's like tom hiddleston sold out to marvel for a decade and hasn't done much of work <laughs> in that last in that amount of time i mean he's done a couple good things but mostly he did marvel and lots of other great actors sold out, like basically gave a decade of their life to Marvel, and it all started around then. Oh my God, Alex, you were, <laughs> you were so elitist. Marvel has done plenty of things that are worth celebrating. It's just, to me, it's a very different kind of audience and a different yeah, kind of movie I making. Mean, it's just not. It's not for me. I like the character stuff. Right. Okay. <laughs> because I think maybe if we were adapting the Hunger Games today. Mm-hmm. This would be like an expensive HBO series. Right. Yeah, we would be getting eight to 10 episodes, wouldn't we? Yeah, and it would be or like an expensive HBO slash BBC, you know, like somewhere with like some prestige associated with it, where they'd get enough money, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't have to like sell out week one because there's an, a bow and arrow, it would be allowed to find its audience. And so then eventually it could find its, you know, 6 million or 10 million audience. Mm-hmm. But it also would have been given more time and then more – I mean, I don't know how you would structure this thing because these books are not written to be structured like in 10 episodes. But I actually think they divide Mockingjay 1 and 2 pretty well. So I think so too. Yeah, I was surprised 
initially that this is where they chose to break it up. And in hindsight, I think this is probably the smartest decision they could have made. Agree. I think we should probably wrap it up there because I feel like you and I could talk about this for about another hour or so. I'm just going to leave you with this dark tidbit from the future, Alex. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is coming to us in around a year, November 17, 2023, is being directed by Francis Lawrence. <laughs> well, I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> Although it does have a script by Michael Arndt, so maybe, maybe? I mean, a lot of these films were scripted by good people. That is true. Yeah. I feel like this is the... Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I feel like this is where artistic creativity and kind of independence like people that we can traditionally rely on to give us good things butts heads with like studio mandated like give me action sequences every 15 to 20 minutes and also we've hired this person who does explosions very well well and the writers probably have no say after they deliver the screenplay right oh god no it's not like it's not like a yoakim trier film where the the co-writer is in the edit Right. No, I I think perhaps not. (laughs) Okay, well, can we play a quick round of YA bingo with Mockingjay Part 1? Oh boy, it's going to get a lot, right? Because it it gave your show its name. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bingo! Not a good bingo. So as the guest, I'll let you take a first crack at it. Don't feel like you have to cover all of them, but give me a couple. Oh boy, okay. Um, I guess there's a holiday prom or wedding. It's mm-hmm. tiny, but it's there. I don't know. Katniss sings a song. So is that musicality? I would say so, especially in the film where it becomes like this chant that leads an entire action sequence. Inclusion flip. That's where you substitute a person of color for a white person. Yeah. So that's our Mahershala Ali. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great because like. He's not well written enough in the book anyway. And nope. then you get Mahershala Ali. So honestly, I, I was like, oh, this is who they cast. That's shocking because uh, he is bringing so much to this incredibly underwritten He's character in the really film. Really good in this. Yeah. Um, but like, it's all him. It's it not 100%. <laughs> it's not the script at all. <laughs> it's not the script at all. Uh, well, we didn't get into the ableism in this, but holy shit, there's a lot of it. Oh boy. Yeah, it's real, real bad. And I think it's meant to be partially a reflection of who this society is. But, you know, we're reading this in 2022 lens and it doesn't read great. No. And I guess abuse, you guys usually mean like parental abuse or like sexual abuse. But uh, I think we can call it abuse in here. I mean, even just the the sheer amount of gaslighting they do to Katniss. Yeah. Well, queer secondary characters. I mean, I guess if you want to be generous and claim that the capital people are but then mm-hmm. also they make fun of them so i think that cancels that out <laughs> true i'm gonna give hollow romance because particularly Absolutely. the the attempts to suggest that there might be something brewing with uh gail is just ridiculous uh definitely stun casting and chosen one we've discussed that mm-hmm. oh god the cg cgi is terrible <laughs> <laughs> They sure didn't get a female director or screenwriter. No, that's one of the new ones. And we've been having a, a reasonable amount of success with it, but uh, definitely not here. Mm, I don't know. I don't think the rest of these are. Well, go for it. I'm going to give a dead body. It's not one oh, yeah. specific body, but you could say like the trauma porn of revisiting District 12 and just like, let's focus on the craters and all the people who died in that sequence where Katniss just sees nothing but skulls and bones everywhere. Right. Compared to the first Hunger Games films where we didn't really show dead bodies. Right. Yeah. Oh, the, the difference anyway. between the Gary Ross film and the Francis Loris film is stark. I know. I sure miss Gary Ross. I do. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I like that first film a lot. So do we, I guess we don't have a bingo? We do not have a line. No. No. But that's okay. We have it's a, a little surprising, a but it's okay. Card, but, or a three quarters <laughs> full card, but. Uh... Yeah. You know what? The odds were not in our favor. Um, Not even a pity laugh? Wow. Okay. Sorry. Alex. <laughs> <laughs> it was well, you know a good what, joke. Alex, this is this is the end of your time anyway. So Oh no, I'm never getting invited back. <laughs> this is true. No mocking Jay part two for you. 
But uh, say if folks want to talk anything Hunger Games with you or specifically Mockingjay Part 1, how would they get a hold of you, Alex? Uh, well, I'm I'm still on Twitter for the moment. Um, right. I guess yeah. who knows where we'll all be in a month, thanks to Elon Musk. But uh, you can find me on Twitter at BWESTCINEAST, B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E. A-S-T-E. I'm also on Instagram there, though I don't really post, but I guess you could find me there. There we go. And then I write on 7th Row, so you can find my writing there, and I'm on the 7th Row podcast, and my emails on the website is just alex at 7th-row.com if you, like, really want to contact me, I guess. Just because <laughs> I don't know, like, who knows what's going to happen with Twitter in the yeah week or two that it takes to edit this. Right. <laughs> Anything could happen in the next couple of weeks. We don't know. So. Oh, boy. Well, if folks want to get a hold of me, I am at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can use the hashtag HKHSPod. If you've got something longer, like, say, a super, super last-minute response to this month's book club. Yes, folks, we are still talking about... Lord of the Flies, both the Golden Book from 1954 as well as the film from 1963. You've got about two days to get them in, so uh, you can hit us up on the email hkhspod at gmail.com. And uh, that is where we're headed next. So if you're not writing in, then you at least need to be reading and watching along. And uh, fun surprise for everyone, Brenna should be back next week. Yay! Yay! Me too. Yeah. I don't love doing the show by myself, which is why I brought in amazing guest stars like you. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I miss Brenna and I want her to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, until next week when we will have our Brenna back, uh, I think we can say goodbye to Mockingjay for a little while. But Alex, thank you so much for jumping on with me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. All right. Well, folks, until Lord of the Flies next week, I will see you on the screen and on the page. It is kind of shocking how... It is kind of shocking how... um, What am I trying to say? Let me try that one more time. But what makes me sad is that I feel like even Susan Collins...